open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our focus this morning will be chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading 319 through 47. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Triune Lord, astound us with the richness of our salvation. The Father who gave, the Son who redeemed, the Spirit who seals. And in light of this, for those who in some manner, some way, are thinking that they must merit or earn your fatherly affection, for those who are genuinely yours, they trust in Christ, but there's that that remaining sin that abides in us that think we have to perform in some way. Father, may we see that because of Christ, 
and all that is ours in Him, we can cry out, Father. We need not merit that. Your Son did. Astound us with this now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In the first seven verses of Galatians 4, Paul takes up the various threads of argument that he's laid out in chapter 3 and weaves them into a beautiful tapestry. The threads of the gift of the Spirit, our promised inheritance, the curse of the law, our slavery outside of Christ, our sonship in Christ, the purpose of the law, all those are here in these verses. Even so, it is the argument that specifically taken up in verse 19 through verse 29 of chapter 3 that stands prominent now and is brought to a conclusion. Paul has argued from various angles that we are justified by faith and faith alone. And that being so, the question naturally came in 3.19, why then the law? And Paul responds with two metaphors. The law is like a prison. The law, along with all Scripture, 3.22, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And second was this metaphor of a pedagogue. That would be a slave, typically, that a Roman master would entrust his son to around the age of seven. And the pedagogue was not so much a teacher as he was a disciplinarian to bring him up to be a fine Roman regarding etiquette and his manners and his thinking and ways, his behavior. Now, historically, the law enjoyed a kind of prominence in this imprisoning pedagogical function to highlight this aspect. And the way it enjoyed it historically up to a date determined by God speaks to its purpose that it had all along and it has still, and that is to bring us to Christ. The duration of the prominence of the law speaks to the purpose of the law. The law was 319 until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was before faith came and until the coming faith would be revealed, 323. And so now with these images of imprisonment and a pedagogue in hand, he broadens it further in chapter 4. He says that the child, though, even though he's the heir apparent, the child, while he is a child, is no different than a slave. While everything is his by promise, he is under. He's under guardians and managers. And it's this being under that speaks to his being like a slave. Indeed, many of these guardians and managers would themselves be slaves. And so he is, as it were, a slave of a slave. And it's here that Paul is speaking more broadly because the word you have for guardian here is different from the word that you had for guardian in chapter 3. This is not the pedagogue being spoken of in chapter 4. It might include him, but guardian here simply means caretaker, and, and we have managers thrown in with this. He's speaking broadly 
about the many who are in his father's household as servants, slaves, that he would entrust his son to, the many that his son is under. The young master would be then under teachers, as pedagogue, guardians, and managers. And this bondage, this, this time that is akin to slavery, is to endure until the date set by his father, verse 2. And a wise father knows the time. Some son, he can read, is going to be ready much earlier. Another son, it will be much later. And then there's that son, never. In the same way, we were children... And while we were children, we were enslaved. What is this childhood slavery? It's that period of time when we were under. Enslaved. What were we under? Well, Paul's unfolded many things up to this point. Chiefly, we were under the law, 3.23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law is the servant of the Lord. And we were under this servant. We were enslaved. That this is still in view here is clear from verse 5 where we're told that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. And being under the law means being under its curse. 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And all this is also telling us that we're under sin. 3.22, again, we saw that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. But now Paul throws out another one. It's one word in the original language. You have it as two, translated in the ESV as elementary principles. What does this mean? There are several options, but the context brings forward two top contenders. The first would mean simply the way you have it translated in the ESV, elementary principles, the ABCs. It's speaking of this pedagogical function of the law while we were children. You were enslaved to the law as a kind of remedial course wherein the emphasis again and again and again was your sinfulness and cursedness. Second, the phrase could mean elemental spirits. This would be a reference to demons. If you look at verse 8, we're told that we were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then in verse 9, it's unpacked further what this means. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again from the weak and worthless elementary principles or elemental spirits of the world? So not God's law, ABCs of the law, but the elemental spirits of the world, whose, not which, but whose slaves you want to be once more. 
you find similar language whenever you go to Colossians chapter 2. And there, the translators of the ESV didn't find any way to manage to go to elementary principles. They, they went with, I think, what's the better translation across the board with this word, elemental spirits. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. And again, you have the phrase following it, of this world, and not according to Christ. It goes on in Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now, do you see how in Colossians the elemental spirits of the world are linked to human tradition and philosophy and regulations? And couple that with what we read in 1 Timothy where Paul warns the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now which one is intended by Paul here? Elementary principles of the law or elemental spirits of the world? Well, if you go with elementary principles, it's clear that that has a reference back to this pedagogical function of the law. Elemental spirits looking forward clearly to what's said in verses 8 and following. So which is it? Well, I think Paul uses this very peculiar word in both of those contexts because he intends both. While we are under the bondage of sin, the law and its curse, we are with that in bondage to Satan and his demons. Ephesians 2 tells us, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Read, you were in bondage to sin. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, while bondage to Satan does mean carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, it means it's synonymous with being in bondage to our sin. Well, that does mean that. That also means following the teachings of demons which as we saw in these contexts involves regulations and rules and law-keeping. Satan loves a Christless law. He wants men to make effort at the law, either unto self-righteous blindness or despairing guilt. John Stott writes, God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. So one person looks at the law, and they are rightly crushed, but they don't ever see the Christ. They think that they must stand up under the law 
and they know there's no way they ever can. And so they constantly are looking down upon themselves truly, but never looking up to the Christ who can save them. Or, as the religions of this world tell us, demons love to convince men that they can deliver themselves by works of the law. Michael Horton asks, What would things look like if Satan really took over a city? Over a half century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in, this week, in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes sir, no ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. That is a very real possibility. Perhaps, but this is clear, his desire is to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he is as happy to do that with a Christless morality as with a pagan immorality. To the law-loving Jews who insisted that Abraham was their father, Jesus said, your father is the devil and you do his works. Demonic teaching can dress up like a self-righteous Pharisee or an immoral pagan. It only cares that you're not clothed with Christ. And so, we were under the law. We were under the curse. We are under sin. We are under these demonic influences. But, verse 4, and it's with this but that Paul unfolds the when, the what, the how, the why of our liberation. When? The Father of our Lord set a time. This time is said to be the fullness of time, verse 4. Now, some speculate that this fullness relates to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that established, established safe roads to travel. It, it built these great roads and then it established a protection upon which to travel these roads connecting the ancient world. Others will say that it's along with this relates to the spread of Greek culture and language that allowed the transmission of ideas across boundaries that it would have been so hard to cross before this point. And then along with this, some speculate this involves the, the dispersion of the Jewish people as a kind of prep work more broadly to allow anchor points for the gospel as it's spreading. Well, we can see the wisdom of our Lord in the time that He chose. But really, the fullness of time, that isn't unpacked for us. We, we can see marks of His wisdom, but to understand the extent of why this was the fullness of time, I think is just above our powers of reasoning. Let's just 
suffice ourselves to say that it was indeed the fullness of time. What did the Father do to liberate us at this time? He, verse 4, sent forth His Son. The intensity of our bondage to sin, to Satan, to the law and its curse, the, the intensity of our bondage was such that the only one capable of liberating us was God Himself. And so the Father sends forth His Son. And how did He send forth His Son? Verse 4. He was born of a woman. Born under the law. He was born of a woman. This no doubt speaks to what we saw earlier, that He is that promised offspring. He is the offspring to be born of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent, to undo the curse and bring His blessings to the nations. He's born under the law. He from whom the law emanates, the law finds its very, its very content from His being. He, he from whom the law emanates comes under the law as a man. Why? At the most basic, at the merest level, C.S. Lewis wrote that the Son of Man became, the Son of God, excuse me, became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's eloquently said, but it's still not said well enough because Jesus didn't come to make sonship merely possible, attainable, but actual. The son, we're told, was sent forth. He was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Redemption is the language of the marketplace. And as this context is making it clear, it's specifically meant to conjure up the image of the slave market. The transition from slavery to sonship is one that happens through redemption. What was the price? We learned that in 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why was He born of the, of the woman, born as a man? So that He might come under the law as a man, as our substitute in our place, and bear the law's curse for our transgressions. Perhaps the most seminal work in church history regarding redemption was written in the 9th century by Anselm, titled, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man? And Anselm didn't get everything perfectly right there, but he got a lot right. And what he posited was basically that in sin, man incurred a debt, and it is a debt that only God can pay, and only man should pay. 
Christ became a man so that as our federal head and representative, He would fulfill all righteousness, that we might be clothed with His righteousness, and He bore the curse for our transgressions. Luther comments, the law did everything to him that it did to us. It accused and terrified us. It subjected us to sin, death, and the wrath of God. And it condemned us with its judgment. And it had a right to do all this, for we have all sinned. But Christ committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. Therefore he owed nothing to the law. And yet against Him so holy, righteous, and blessed, the law raged as much as it does against us, accursed and condemned sinners. And even more fiercely, it accused Him of blasphemy and sedition. It found Him guilty in the sight of God of all the sins of the entire world. Finally, it so saddened and frightened Him that He sweat blood. And eventually it sentenced Him to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was sent, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem, and He redeemed, we're told, that we might be adopted as sons. By the substitution of the Son, we are not only redeemed out of slavery, we are adopted as sons. And the Father purposed to do this in the fullness of time before there was time. As we read in Ephesians, in love God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Our sonship comes as we are in union with the Son, the Son who redeemed us, the Son who bled so that we might be forgiven and justified. And as a result, because we are sons, God sends the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts so that we might cry, Abba, Father. There is a double sending here of the Father. The Father not only sends His Son so that we might be sons, He sends the Spirit of His Son so that we might know And enjoy sonship. He does not just want you to be a son. He wants you to know your sons. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the son? There are several implications of this as it's used throughout scripture. But no doubt at the fore here and so often in scripture is that it's the Spirit who puts us into union with the Son and ministers all that is ours in the Son to us. The Father 
sends a spirit to testify to us of our sonship. In Romans, Paul explains, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you catch in the call to worship from Ephesians 1 that after mentioning that we are adopted as sons, having been redeemed by Christ, that Paul went on to say that in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then he says, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, of it to the praise of His glory. So the Spirit as this guarantee, as this seal, as this sign, testifies to your inheritance. And here's the way it's being unpacked. Here's the way it happens. As the Spirit comes into you such that you cry out, Abba, Father. He's the seal, He's the sign, He's the guarantee. As He testifies to you, you're a son. Father. We can't say that too often. But we do say it too frivolously. Don't forget what the Father gave. What the Son paid. And what the Spirit seals. That we might say, Father. Unfortunately, in these fatherless days, the term Father does not call many to cry out in joy. Causes them to cry in pain. And if so, know this. That the pain is so severe because the word Father is meant to mean so much. Contrary to the philosophers of our age, God is not some construct up in the sky of our father pain. Douglas Wilson writes, we do not project our ideas of fatherhood up onto the big screen of the heavens. No, God, God's ultimate idea of fatherhood is projected onto the little screens that each of us carries around. And so any pain that you might associate with the word father is because you've got the projection reversed. You're projecting your idea of what fatherhood is up into the heavens. And that's not the way it's meant to be understood. R.C. Sproul writes, I know people who struggle to address God as Father. People have said to me, I can hardly bear to say it because my earthly father was a cruel and insensitive person. People have told me of instances in which their fathers committed child abuse 
And they've asked me, after that experience, how could I possibly address God as Father? The word is repugnant to me. I can understand the reaction, he says. I usually acknowledge that what makes the pain and torment they bear in their psyche so severe is the fact that those things didn't happen at the hands of a next-door neighbor, an uncle, or someone else. It was from their father. And nature itself teaches that they rightfully should expect much more from their earthly fathers than they have received. Yeah, the pain you might associate with that word does speak to your heavenly father, but it speaks to it in the way that the sting of hunger speaks that there is such a thing as food. It testifies to what your heavenly father is not. Saints, the one we call out to as father is the one who sent his beloved son that we might be sons. The one you address as father is the one who sent his spirit that you might know your sons. Can we not then reason as Paul? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so it is that Paul, after having laid down so many of these beautiful threads in chapter 3, and weaving them together in these six verses now, reaches this conclusion that he's been driving at. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under its curse. We're no longer under sin. We're no longer under the elemental spirits. We are sons. And as sons, heirs. And remember that in this, Paul's concern has been to demonstrate that we're not justified by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. And so to attempt now to merit God's favor is to act as a slave. But we are not slaves. We're sons. We need not merit sonship. Christ already has. And the Spirit is the assurance that this is so. So do you not see how this then takes us back to where we began? Paul's weaving of this tapestry in chapter 3. 3 and verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or hearing with faith? 
How did the testimony of your sonship come? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now can you see how this also then relates to the verses that lie ahead? Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? Do you hear the same, oh foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. To those of you who you truly, down in the depths of your soul, know you're relying on Christ and Christ alone and there's nothing in yourself. But yet... You fall again and again into the cycle of thinking you must somehow merit God's fatherly affection. Hear this. You in Christ are not slaves. You are sons. And He did not give His Spirit to bind you in the kind of slavery, but to liberate you to cry out to Him as Father. Your sonship is completely bound up with Christ. The grounds upon which you cry out to God and know God and stand before God as a son could not be more firm and eternal and unshakable. The Father will never leave you or forsake you because to do so would mean him forsaking his eternally beloved and perfect son. God would have to forsake himself to forsake you. And so most assuredly, if you cling by faith to the son, you are sons. And if sons, heirs of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son so that we might be sons. And sending your Spirit that we might know we're sons. And God, forgive our sinful blindness. That in light of such extravagance, we would doubt your love and our position before you in Christ. And so testify to your children anew today.
by your Spirit all that is true of us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.